What's up, YouTube? I'm Robert, and this is the Biker Bar B1. Today, here we are, episode 40. Holy shit, it's been a long time. It's almost been a year we've been running this this gig and uh, having having a good time every 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 Sunday at 5 p.m. PST. Every once in a while, we we fudge the time, but you know what? It is what it is. We're all people. So, what? Look at this, 504. That sounds like it's on time to me. Anyways, I just wanted to say thank you to anybody that shows up today. It's a good time always hanging out with all, all my peeps. Um, I also wanted to say thank you to anybody that throws out a super chat. You guys out there, I really appreciate the support of the channel. It means a lot. And uh, this this week, I know it's been a couple of weeks since I've been on. We had the holiday. I think I had like a, 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 like a bamboozle kind of situation that happened with one of them. Like we, some people were out in the mountains and they... They couldn't get any cell signal where they were at, but here we are. And honestly, this show, this week's show is going to be a lot of fun. I'm pretty excited to chat with this guy. We are here today with Toby from Box Components. He's actually the owner and the founder of Box Components. Uh, I'm not sure where we're going to go with this. So he's got a pretty, pretty fun past as well as what he's doing presently. Uh, Toby, go ahead and give yourself an introduction and we'll go from there, man. Hi guys, uh, Toby Henderson. Um, living in Fullerton, California, right now. Grew up in Cerritos, but have a big background in BMX racing and downhill mountain biking from uh, early or late seventies to the late nineties. So, twenty years of racing, and now I'm uh, making bike parks. Here we are. So, so you're you're a big BMX guy. Back in the day, I think a lot of us, a lot of my demographic draft. See if I can speak English today. A lot of my demographic is is you know guys that were a little, little bit older. You were in our late thirties, early forties, fifties, sixties. I don't know. Maybe there are some kids out there. I actually, ran into some on the trail today. But um, nonetheless, a lot of us started out on BMX because back in the day, that that was the only way to start. So how how did you get into BMX? Uh, I think it's just a desire. You know, uh, at five years old, I was riding my bike down the down the sidewalk, just kind of learning how to ride. And I, got a little squirrely and went off the curb and pulled it off, right, five years old. And when I went off that curb and got that tiny bit of air, I go, this is what I want to do. Literally, this is what I want to do. At nine years old, I'm you know, finding every piece of wood I could in the, in the house and stacking up and making these big jumps and taking my sister's huffy and riding to the, you know, the wheels were off the thing because it was lighter than <laughs> I had, right? So right. anyway, yeah, so it's just at five years old, I started wanting to do that. And at 12, I worked in a bike shop, and um, at 17, I was a professional bicycle rider. And it just all, it just all happened, man. Since I was five, so I've been doing it a long time. So, so when I I met you at Sea Otter, for those of you guys that obviously you don't know that, I met this guy at Sea Otter. Started chatting with him, and he said, "Man, you gotta, gotta, you gotta go do a little little reading on me ahead of time, and uh, then then it'll make the conversation more fun." And I normally don't ever do that, but I did just because you said to. <laughs> I don't know, power of suggestion or something like that. But your your dad like really like stood up behind you. It seems like a lot through that part of your career, right? Uh, I don't know where did you get that because of the picture. Wiki was saying that man. I, you're like, no, I don't even know my dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's a, my dad's a funny story. Hope he's not listening. You know, um, no, uh, my, when my BMX career took off. It, it, my mom and dad were going through divorce. I'm 17. I'm all of a sudden at 16 years old. My mom gave me a watch and says your curfew is nine nine p.m. I mean, I grew up in a pretty strict home, right? But at mm -hmm. 17, I was offered this opportunity with Raleigh Bicycles to travel the world and race BMX. So at the same time, my parents were kind of getting a divorce and all that. But 
at, I don't know, 19 years old. I'm riding for Raleigh. Big deal. Big fanfare. My dad shows up to be a part of that with his new girlfriend, and they basically pushed my dad out of the pits because they didn't know who he was. So, no, uh -huh. my dad wasn't a part of that. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought I read something about, like, like there was a point in your career where – like he funded some part of it or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think what you saw was a picture of uh, me wearing the jerseys at Thanks Dad. And oh, okay. what, I did, what I did was at the end of the BMX career, you, I could not find a ride. It was like one day you're making a crap load of money and one day you got nothing. It was literally that, like a, like a, you know, a knife just sliced it off, right? Um, anyway, so I, I went to my dad who was doing okay at the time and, and I said, hey, I need some entry fees. And, and I was still riding for JT Racing who actually paid me for 20 years straight. And uh, maybe Georgia said, thanks, Dad. My dad paid my entry fees, and I went and tried one more time and got my ass whooped. So I kind of uh, knew at that point. Knew at that point, you know, I'm 27 years old. I think my BMX career is kind of over. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's how that one went down. That, that That's interesting. So, so basically, so you, you did a lot of BMX riding, and, and where did you start getting into the bigger hoops? Um, so, anyway, so at the end of around 26, 27 years old, I was still riding for JT, and John Gregory – the owner of JT Racing, I was telling him I was struggling, trying to find a ride and this and that. He sent me, called Mike Senior to specialize and sent me a, a stump jumper, top of line stump jumper. And this would have been 87, right? So um, I get the stump jumper and um, take it to a mountain bike race. I show up and uh, in my van shoes and the Lycra that JT had given me and I signed it for pro. And uh, Robbie Roop, which was a BMX guy at the time and he uh, says, Toby, you don't want to do that. You got to sign up for novice. You sign up for pro. You can never go back. This was early Norway years, right? So uh, anyway, so I said, he, he talked to me into signing up for novice. So anyway, I'm in the, you know, I don't know where we're lined up, but I take off like a bat of hell, like a BMX guy. And I get about 500 yards up some hill and I'm walking. <laughs> I'm walking. Here That's goes. almost every walk. ride for me, dude. Well, <laughs> it was, anyway, it was nothing what I, I, I really thought it was going to be. I got passed by... Cindy Whitehead, which was the pro woman chick, and then a, a guy that lived by me who was actually a gate starter when we were BMX, an older guy who had some uh -huh. kids who raced, and at the time, a 40-year-old guy passes me, right? I'm like, Cindy oh Whitehead, she's she's the chick that rode that fucking ride out in Colorado with no seatposts. No seat. Cindy Whitehead, she comes back kind of from early... <laughs> Didn't really carry on in my day, but she was kind of one of the early mountain bike girls, right? So those of you guys that don't know what the hell I'm talking about, this chick is freaking badass. Yeah, she I want to say it was a race in Colorado, right? And she snapped her seat post in like the first half mile of the ride. So basically, she has this, you know, just post sticking out, no seat, and did like a 19 mile ride and fucking won this race. Yeah, like she was, she, she's every bit of a badass. Look her, look, look her up, man. Killed everybody. Yeah, yeah, like that's just dominated. She was a pretty competitive girl. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, anyway, so anyway, so um, uh, I knew at that time I wasn't the best bike rider in the world like I thought I was, and went home that night, quit eating pizza and quit drinking beer, and I actually started training for cross country. Right. And lost twenty pounds. Became a pretty darn good expert guy, but I couldn't get to the pro class. I'm just too big. I'm I'm six foot, hundred eighty pounds. I, you know, I don't have a cross country body. And yeah. uh, anyway, so. Neither uh, do I, dude. Yeah. <laughs> if you have one, you're a lucky guy. I don't know. I didn't want to say that. But long story short, you know, I, I got really fit. I had some BMX background. And then, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, downhill kind of popped up. 
And I kind of throw myself into downhill and dual slalom. And by 1992, it was a huge thing for me. And next thing I know, I'm again traveling around the world, racing mountain bikes and, and racing downhill and, and slalom. So that went really well for another eight, 10 years, right? So it was good. So you, so you kind of pulled through, I, I think at that point, maybe like your 30s, you were doing the downhill and stuff like that? Yeah, I retired when I was 38. So uh -huh. my last year as a downhill guy, I was 36 years old. I won downhill mania in 1996. Uh -huh. I was 36 years old. It was tough. It was BMX kind of where four guys at a time racing mm -hmm. five minute downhill. The time defense were, I thought, a lot tougher than head to head. Head to head allowed you to take a breath, right? So, right. You know, I mean, you could you could come into the corner and rest a little bit because you're just kind of concentrating on the other guys in the race. Where right. You can see where the other dude is. Well, yeah, you're trying to keep up with them, but right. in front of it, it's it's every turn, every bump, every pedal strokes extremely important, right? right. So uh, I was a little bit better, I think, at the head-to-head -head stuff because my BMX background. But all in all, I was a five-time uh, USA team member from '92 to '97, so pretty good mountain bike career. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it, man. Yeah. So at that point, um, what what year did box start? So um, I started box uh, begin January first, twenty twelve. So, so you have a little bit of a gap. What'd you do in that time frame? Well, I owned a company called THE. Do you remember that brand? Made THE, but made the Fender. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was Toby Henderson Enterprises, and then I went on to make carbon fiber helmets and uh, owned Intense BMX and did a lot of product stuff from about two thousand to two thousand and eleven, and I sold that company. Uh -huh. in 2011 and i took that money and started box <laughs> so so dude i i don't i don't even understand like I, i'm actually anxious to hear the answer to this like you got sram you got shimano there's some not one gorilla you got two fucking gorillas in this room and you're like you know what i'm gonna start a component company what 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 the fuck were you thinking man <laughs> I don't know. I, I hate to say I was probably just naive enough to to give her a shot, but uh, if I wouldn't know what I know now, I probably wouldn't have done it. But now that we're here, I'm glad I did it. I think I was probably a lot more scared knowing um, what I was up against in the beginning. But um, I, we're really excited. You know, I, I've made a I owned intense tires with ITS. We called it. I own a BMS company, I owned a helmet company, I've made a handle bar, I've made a grip, I've made a lot of products, and a lot of them, knock on wood, are successful. Um, the only thing left really for me was the component side, and, and I looked at it and going, if I want a $200 million company, if I want something at that level, where do I need to be? I need to be doing OEM, OEM drivetrain. It's uh -huh. the only thing out there that, that really has a, a hole or an opening. But then we get into the, the, the landmine of IP, you know, um, that's just, it's, it's extremely difficult. But put a good team around us. We got some good people in the company, our engineers, our, our, our legal, all this stuff to, to really try to, I don't want to say, yeah, compete or at least survive in this world between these other two So guys. do you like go out and look for like venture capitalists at that point? Or you like just got you know, friends from the industry that invest or <laughs> you seeded that shit because you're just a baller? <laughs> uh, I, more of a baller, I think. Uh, our cash flow is not the best. Uh, yeah. But no, we, when I started in 2012, I, I built the BMX program, built the BMX race program. We built that company up into the millions of dollars, and the cash flow from that is helping us develop the mountain bike side. So we have a strong BMX race background. We have a we saw a lot of BMX race stuff, and we're using 
some of that capital, some of those 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 cash flow to help uh -huh. on the mountain bike side. But if you look at my racing career and you look at our company, it's basically the same thing: BMX, mountain bike. It's the same uh -huh. same stuff. I'm familiar. I'm comfortable with that stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah. do what you're good at, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense. And you yeah. know. So um, I always like to ask this question. How did you come up with the name Box? Oh, man. You know, so I had THE. And, and THE was always at the end of the directory. It's always at the bottom of the list because it's the first letter was a T. So you go to Interbike, and, man, I'm at the back of the book, blah, blah, blah. So I started <laughs> this company. I'm like, all right, well, I, I want to be at the front of the alphabet. And I always know that three letters, these are the marketing class I took, told me three letters was – you know, uh, the eye can keep it. It's, it's a thing. It's easier for the brain to remember. Yeah, so yeah. I basically wrote down a thousand names starting with letters at the top of the alphabet, and the word box just stuck out. Uh -huh. just stuck out, just stuck out. I just said, that's the one. I just went with that. And there's no other reason than that. You know? Right on, man. Yeah. So do you guys have like a little bit of a like a, like a proprietary way that you do that stuff compared to, you know, the way that other companies were doing, if I remember correctly? Uh, doing what part? Like, like your, like your derailleur or something like that. It's like your, your, well, your derailleur, your shifter. It's different. I, well, I, I can't remember what it is exactly, but it, it, it's like a, a different way of doing it. Whenever you guys first came out, I remember like thinking, yeah, right. Oh, well they're doing this differently. Right. And this goes back to IP and the big dogs and, and, and what we're talking about. But yeah, we had a shifter that was called push, push. It was a mm -hmm. single lever and it had two functions. Right. So mm -hmm. we came out with this shifter that was completely departure from the rest of the industry, which it was a good shifter. It had its thing. People love it. Some people still have them and wish we could make them again. But one of the big dogs came along and slapped my head and said, no, we have uh, you, you're infringing on some IP. Oh, they, yeah. They uh, shut that project down. And That's really yeah. tough, man, because it's like here you want to come into an industry. Hey, yeah, you, you want to make money. You're you're trying to build a business or whatever. But. I mean, how, there's only so many ways to make a shifter, right? Exactly. And, and I, I, I believe in IP. I believe in patents. I believe in all that stuff. You just got to figure out a way to navigate through them. So it was a little bit of our fault. We did buy a patent from somebody. Um, the one that we're talking about, it was purchased, but Shimano had, I, I didn't want to say that one, but the other guy had. Some um, company out there. Yeah, had our prior art on that one. And we, you know, we just didn't do our due diligence. So. And I really learned a lot from that and thought, okay, now from here forward, we really got to have our ducks in a row legally and make sure we're putting product to market that we can sell. So, so that's interesting to me. So whenever you're you're starting a company and you're in this bike industry, like you can go out and look at existing patents and then reach out to those people and see if they want to sell it or like lease it to you or is there like different oh, options? Or I, I think most of what we do comes to us. I, I think that the people that don't know how to market, don't know how to distribute, don't know how to manufacture. They're like, hey, I got this great idea. Yeah. Dude, check this shit out. Yeah. I want you to buy into it. And that's how we got in the trailer business. I told you I was just naive enough that someone had come to me, had this patent, let's get into it, had a trailer idea. I said, all right, let me have those files. Let's see if I can make this thing at our factories in Taiwan. And and that's what we did. We just went to Taiwan and started making this these products from a guy that um, – had some patents that we had purchased and that's how it so, all began. So how did that, how did that first couple of years go? Like you, you, you obviously know a lot of people in the industry from your career. So you're just like, you had like hookups or like people that you knew or whatever. You're like, I'm going to get into this product. Like, how did you know 
how to like distribute it or to market it or whatever. Well, you know, I, when I quit racing, I, I finally decided I wanted to make product. It's a funny story. When I was 12 years old, I worked at a bike shop and I brought home a Schwinn sticker. Mm -hmm. And I put that Schwinn sticker on my mirror and I, I looked at that sticker and go, I want to make product someday. Literally at 12 years old, I knew what I wanted to do with my life was to make bicycle products. I was in love with it. I worked at the shop. This is who I wanted to be. But at 17, I became a professional bicycle rider. So that whole building product got pushed back till 98 when I made the very first fender, which was wildly successful. And of course, fenders went like this and blah, blah, blah. But during that time, I learned how to deal with overseas manufacturing. I literally one day got a, a book called the TBW, which is a book of manufacturers in Taiwan. And I picked a bunch of product out that I wanted. And I flew to Taiwan for the first time I by myself, met a guy there who took me around Taiwan. I had this book and I said, I want to meet these people who make these things. Mm -hmm. And I want to put a name on it. And I had some money in my pocket and I went over there and I just started making product. Right. So, so to your question was, how do you do that? I learned how to make product in Taiwan early on. Right. Because well, he had already had a few businesses at that point. So then how do you get back from Taiwan with, okay, I got these guys like building something for me to like, how do you start selling that? I mean, like somebody like GoPro, I think he started selling out of the back of his van. Right. I mean, I would assume at that point you've had enough business experience with like distribution and stuff that, that you kind of like knew how to go about it or like what was the approach? I think because of the Fender, when the THE Fender came out in uh, 99, we sold a half a million of them between 99 and middle of 2020. Um, and I thought that's how it worked. I thought that this is how the bike industry was. And then one day we woke up and that Fender was just no good. It, no one wanted it anymore. Everybody took it off their bikes and the company just plummeted. But I learned distribution through that channel because people had come to me because I had a product that was unique. So I right. learned distribution. I learned who these people were. I learned because I had a great product. And still today, I think that if you're going to compete in our industry, you've got to come up with something unique and different, right? And the drivetrain is extremely difficult to become unique and different. Um, it's it's a, something that's very refined. It's something that has some big dogs playing. But but I, I learned the distribution part by, I think, that original part. I knew these people. And luckily, I've been able to put product to market that is desired. And I really think that, that because I'm a bike rider, when I make a handle grip, it's based upon my experience of blisters on my thumb, blisters on my palm, right? right. So I make a grip based upon my riding experience. And when that gets to market, I think that people who ride a lot kind of value some of these features that we put on these products. And it, some of the things we've made have been really, really successful. So, What's some of the stuff from back in the day that you miss, man? I'll tell you what right now, like I, like we, we started out saying, you know, I used to ride BMX when I was younger and I wasn't like a, uh, like a dirt track, like BMX racer. I was more like a street BMX kind of rider. Right. And one of the things that I loved the most, man, I had this set of handlebars that just like the, the way that where your hands sit had a little bit of a bend to it. Right. They were so fucking comfortable, man. Because right. it was like the way that bend went, it just like went right into your palm just right. right. You probably remember the bars I'm talking about. Well, I think we all have our own style. We all want our own right. back sweep. I think we're all a little bit different. No, right? it wasn't back sweep. It wasn't a back sweep. It was, it was like they had like a little bit like like think almost like a U kind of like oh, right where your hands are. Power power bend. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, something like that. Power light. Oh man, power I fucking love those bars. Bend in it, yeah. 
Those things were awesome. How, how about you? Anything that you remember from back in the day that, that you miss? Oh, man. You know, I don't know. I think it's funny because the whole BMX thing is going on right now where there's this huge crowd of people who look at the old school stuff and they they um, redevelop the bikes or they recondition the bikes and they, you know, vintage stuff, right? And none yeah. of that stuff means anything to me. What I really, really like is advancing our stuff, advancing technology, making the bikes faster, lighter. These are things that I enjoy. And I was extremely lucky to, in mountain biking to be a part of a, my very first bike had no suspension. And then the last bike I had had eight inches of travel front and rear. So I went from no suspension in the late 80s to eight inches of travel in the late 90s. Yeah. And I was a part of all that. And I think that that's what turns me on is the innovation and the technological advances of the bike product. Right? The, the first mountain bike that I had was, was fully rigid. And that was like almost the top of the line giant the top of the line giant was still fully rigid i don't right. even know what the difference was at the time i mean right. just like the paint color and some you know had the bio paste chain rings and yeah all that fun stuff but uh yeah man, it's kind of like it's crazy to think about what we rode back then and how we rode it i had um had a guy on a few months ago that was was or not a few months ago about a month ago that was uh uh, part of the, the 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 dudes in Marin that kind of started mountain biking, so to speak, and uh, it, it it's just crazy to see like how the bikes have changed over time. Right. But because of the bikes changing over time, the shit that we're riding now compared to what we rode back then, right? It, it just blows my mind, man. It right. makes me wonder, like. Where the hell are we? What what the hell kind of shit are we gonna be riding like 10, 15 years from now? Right, yeah. You and, know? and we I've got a company that that's thinking like that, who thinks about what we're gonna do 15 years from now. What are we gonna are we gonna you know ride something like the car behind me? What 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 are we gonna do? I, and then that's because I'm all into e-bikes now and and uh -huh. you know, and um, I know some people don't like that, oh, whatever, but but don't have yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of politics in that, but I think and, and, and I'll say this to you, and because a I don't give a shit about fucking pissing people off about my opinion. That's what I do, you know. And, and to me, I feel like if anything gets people outside, that's a plus, right? Because there's so many things right now that are are all gravitating around keeping people inside, looking at their phone, playing their Xbox, whatever. Right. Like, I don't give a fuck what it is that gets you outside. Right. Get the fuck outside, right. you know. No, um, uh, you know, my wife that uh, I'm married to now, she, we've been together five years. And when she, we first got together, she rode a mountain bike with me. She had a crash. I giggled. She wanted nothing to do with riding a mountain bike with me because of this first experience. Right. Then we got a couple e-bikes. And now she's happy to go e-bike riding. She enjoys it. She loves it. She can keep up with me. It, it's a, it changed our way to ride. So, Us yeah. guys are good at screwing up that first ride, dude. Oh, I my when I first got with the lady I, I'm with right now, we've been together for about ten years. When we first got together, she had told me she was a mountain biker, and we talked. And you know, like it, it, it's such a relative thing of how good of a rider you are. But when you talk to people, you can't you like kind of maybe project they're better than they are or worse than they are. And in her case, like I was projecting probably a little better. And uh, so <laughs> we went out fucking partied all night long you know that's what you do at the beginning of your relationship drink a bunch of wine beer or whatever get naked and and so in the morning we're a little bit hungover i'm like oh yeah let's go do this ride and in my head i know this is a pretty shitty climb for about 
2000 feet of elevation. Oh, man. And then after that, it's a fun ride. Right. Well, let me tell you about that. We got up to about the 2000 point and she was like, uh, let's go back. And I was like, no, I'm telling you seriously, like it's good after this. And she's like, no, like you already told me it was going to be that bad of a climb. I'm done with your mountainies. Like, let's go. I'm hungover. It's hot as hell. It's California. Like, let's, let's, let's be done with it. Fortunately, she stuck around. So <laughs> either way, us guys, we definitely, we're definitely really good at not freaking like planning that shit out very well. Right. Well, I, I took Brian Lopes on his first mountain bike ride. Exactly the same experience you're talking about. Oh yeah. Come on, Brian. Come on. Right up near the trailhead. You're going to join the downhill. <laughs> he kept telling me all the way to the trailhead. He was 18 year old stud. Um, I'm 10 years older than Brian. We're good friends. And, and, uh, I kind of schooled him a little bit and said, you know, this is not BMX, this is not what it is. And, but yeah, he'll never, but now he's a stud. That guy's you know, right. Whatever, so, yeah. It's a different thing, man. You know, it's totally a different thing. It's like even people that are like super fit, say they're like a runner or somebody that goes to the gym a lot. Um, even a, I, I, I've even gone out with guys that are road bikers and they, they take a look at me and they're like, oh yeah, whatever. I'm us this fat fucker you know and then we get out and we start riding and they're like what the fuck man it's a, it's a it's a different thing on a mountain bike because it's it's really um punchy at points and then there's other parts of it that has a lot to do with technique where like where people think you know you can't just be fit and go out and be good at it you know right well, i guess where the e-bike comes into play i think e-bike allows you to explore more allows you to do more things that you you couldn't do on a regular mountain bike and i've i there's trails in my backyard that I would never go up that hill because it was too much work. But now I'll go check it out. Found there's a golf course over there. I would right. never run up that on a regular bike. It was too big of a climb, right? So right. But going on exploring, I think it's good for us, like you said earlier, to get out of the house and do something with your life. Yeah. So I if I remember correctly, there's also something unique about you guys, like all your your parts, like they're all serviceable by by the um by by the consumer side. Yeah. So when we built our first trailer, we wanted to give you the parts. So you could take the clutch out, put a new clutch in, replace the cage, these kind of things. I don't know how many people really want to do that, but we wanted to make sure that the that the dreader was uh, modular, right? So it can be replaced, it can do these kind of things. But with our lifetime warranty that we offer now, if you break anything or crack anything, we give you a new one. And people think we're crazy about doing that, but but you know, I, I we've had a few people take advantage of that, but really at the end of the day, I think people are real honest with us. You know, if it's our fault, obviously we're taking care of stuff. We've had some problems in the beginning. I'm developing the product. I took several years to get to where we are. Um, but I think that that with our lifetime warranty, we're not seeing as much of that modular thing kind of going on. But so at the end of the day, if you you know you wore something out, you can buy just that part and put it on the drader where some of the guys you can't do that. So so let's talk about the warranty then. I didn't know that you guys did that. What is what, what's the deal with that? Well, three years ago when we came with our first drader, we had uh, die casted a part that should have been forged. So through all the testing we had done and and all right right can now, you explain the difference to me real quick between die casting and forging for people that aren't are, are aware die cast is a hot forge like pouring hot metal into a mold right okay and you porous areas in that where forging is a blank of aluminum and you stamp it into position when you stamp it it actually takes the molecules of the material and forces them into a better um, stronger strain where the die cast you get these porous kind of, of areas, right? Yeah, so it's kind of like pouring something in there, like 
like you might have some little air bubbles in there or something right. like that where right. you stamp it in you're like squishing all that shit out of there so it makes right sense. you're squishing it and you're, you're pushing that stuff to the side and, you, and you're basically making a way stronger i don't know what the exact terms are because i'm not yeah yeah player. no it sounds like we're scientists there right now yeah, yeah i'm not i have engineered <laughs> i'm not that guy i'm a bike guy anyway so uh yeah so we had some braking problems uh this we had a, a little corner had a radius in it that, that corner just kept cracking and we had to build back our confidence with our customers we really needed the the uh the consumer to know that we're standing behind them we replaced all those vendors we fixed the problem took about a year to do it so we kind of came back and said hey you break anything that we make break it or crack it we'll give you a new one and that's lifetime on any products that we make and we've been sticking to that. I, I, I monitor that really, really a lot. And, and I think we've had less than 1% of the our returns take advantage of us. You can tell when. That, like, yeah, yeah. No, I totally hear what you're saying there. Yeah. And and really, you know, we get one or two a day, whatever. But we put, in BMX, we put 150,000 units of stuff a year into the market. Mountain biking, not quite as much yet. But we put, so a lot of stuff gets into the market. If I'm getting something, I can tell you right now, dude, out of, out of my perspective from a consumer side, I think every time that you replace something that's broken, you get like three new customers out of that. Right. And, and because like, that guy's going to tell every fucking buddy. From 150,000 units a year to replacing 300 things. It's really right. a small number. Yeah. You know? and, and we decided to go with that. And it's, uh, even though the industry hasn't really adopted that, we haven't done a good job of marketing that it's there. We do have a form where you go to our website, you fill that out, you show a picture of it. And we're, if it's something that's broken, we'll give you a new one. I'll tell you what, my favorite company, excuse me, I'm getting over a little cold here. My favorite company that, or getting over one, um, my favorite company that I've worked with the whole time that I've been doing this, this YouTube gig is a company called Cali Protectives. They do helmets and stuff like that. Yeah. And they have, Brad and Brad. A, yeah, Brad's a great guy. You know Brad? Of course I know Brad. Yeah, I used yeah. to make helmets. Yeah, yeah, Brad's Brad's a good dude, man. And uh they have a, a crash replacement that's you know hundred yeah. percent like you break it. Like Brad just really cares about people being safe, you know? Yeah. And and they'll replace it. And like most companies, they they don't I don't know of another company that has a replacement plan like his. Maybe right. maybe there is somebody probably in the chat will be like, Oh yeah, so and so does this, but like he he really gives a shit. And I feel like that means a lot you know and, and that's where you see people be able to like relate with you as a company as not being just like some like some some like well-oiled machine that's just trying to churn out money and profits right. you know you're you're actually give a shit about your people and i think in the at the end of the day that means a lot to consumers we think we see the distribution channel changing as well. We think that with the success of Amazon and these other people, we think that people really want that interaction between themselves and the company direct. They don't right. want they, they don't want the middle guy. So we're we're trying to set us up to where if you want to know something, you can call our office and talk to us, and we'll give you the information you need. Where you buy it from, that's not, that's up to you. But we know that we think in the future it's going to be the interaction and, and, and with the consumer and the brand. And that's what the people want. Memberships, first right to get something new. These are the things we think are going to be the future. And, so um, you guys are you guys sell direct to consumer on your website and then you also go through like retailers or what is, what is the way to go about buying box components? Well, we're multi-channel. So we sell to distributors, we sell to dealers, uh, we sell to mail order guys, and we sell direct. 
What's the so, difference between a distributor and a dealer? I don't know that. A distributor is like QBP or WPS or BTI. And basically, you'll Those sell. Those are like the guys that sell the parts to like the bike shops or something. Right, right. Okay, that, that's it. a distributor. And yeah, then okay. the dealer is a bike shop, right? So, okay. And, and there, but there's a margin that the distributor has to have to, you know, make the money to before he sells it to a dealer. But right, he right, carries right. The, the dollar, he carries the. The funds right he pays you but he, he has to get his money from the dealer so right there's a reason for that but what happens is these distributors are start building their own brands right and their own brands they can kind of cut that margin out do a better job with that margin they're already dealing with the dealer so the distributors are becoming brands guys right. like us aren't distributors we're, we're a brand and, right right um, so it's just, I think it's all just changing out there right now. So, but I think there's a little bit of a difference then in the way that you have to set your company up then is if you're going to be direct to consumer, like you have to have some customer service, you have to have like those channels. And maybe in the past companies didn't want to like build that infrastructure. They didn't feel like it, like the, the money was there. But I think I, what you're saying with the way that people are purchasing now, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. Well, we had, you know, Canyon come to the States and now Canyon sells direct. So all the other bike brands in the United States are starting to, they're still tippy-toeing on this, where they're going to sell you the bike direct, but but you have to pick it up at a bike shop. Well, eventually we know that that's, you know, Canyon says right to you, right? Yeah, I had Fazari on a few weeks ago, and uh, or a month or so ago, and they, they build like almost, like they call it custom, but they're like, you know, they're, they're changing some stuff for you to make sure that it fits you exactly, and that's right to your house, man. Right. The downside is, man, it's it's tough, dude. I'll tell you what. The only thing for me that's tough about that is like, yes, almost any bike you buy right now is going to be a good bike. But it's like buying a car, man. You gotta you gotta do that butt test, man. That's the the one thing. You know what I mean? The put your butt on the seat and feel it. Like like okay, yeah, this is good. Because I'll tell you, I've even with bikes and cars, like I I've looked at specs and like been like this is the fucking one and then got out there and got on the trail and it was like nope, nope you know what I mean? yeah no i think i think the bike shops are a good place to go find that out and what i do find is people calling us asking us all these questions and they want to retrofit something you should go to the bike shop and ask those questions because that's the guy who can really help you with some of your obscure yeah. things right but people so just don't want to go sometimes i don't know and yeah i think i i think personally this is just my own opinion with bike shops I think that you want to that if I wanted to start a bike shop that was going to be successful, I'd plan it close to like a trailhead where I can build a community around the shop being with like food and beer and bike and maintenance and you know what I mean? And like your, your brand of your, like get people wearing your shirts and like, like it's so much more to it now than it was when, I know where I bought my first mongoose as a little kid, freaking BMX rider, like little Grom. Like it was just some dude that had this little hole in the wall spot and he sold bikes and he sold like airplanes and whatever the fuck else they sold. In the, you know what I mean? It was like a hobby shop, yeah. you know? Yeah. It, it, I think though, to be like a the, the bike shops that you see just like, just killing it. They're the ones that are doing kind of like what, what I was just saying. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Think I'm on one there or? No, I, I mean, I think, I think it's become a more specialized. I think that, that like for a BMX thing, you know, there's not a lot of BMX dedicated shops because the, the sport's so small. That's why I think they're coming to us correct because they kind of trust us or have that relationship with us. But the few good bike shops who specialize in BMX, now they're the ones who are actually selling a lot of product. I mean, we you still know, sell. 
You know what, Toby? I actually didn't think about that at all until you just said that. And that just like freaking hit me like, 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 holy shit. What the hell happened to BMX, man? Because like when I was a kid, that was like, that's where you, th that was what you did. And now I think about it. I'm like, even these kids bikes nowadays, even if you're getting the Walmart bike, there's not a whole lot of BMX frames. It's like, you get those at the, like the little, like tiny little kid frame size. And on the, right after that, they're, they're putting them into like a, a pseudo mountain bike, but like, it, yeah, that, that BMX market is, is gone, huh? Uh, I don't know. I think if you're a hardcore BMX race, there's still 330 tracks in the United States. There's 50,000 kids with memberships. There's 25,000 French. There's 20,000, you know, Dutch. Uh, yeah, but it's not like I, I know without a, like, at least from like my circle of friends, like when, when we were kids, dude, everybody wanted to ride BMX. Yeah. You wanted to go out and freaking learn how to do wheelies or jump off of this or, you know, spin your handlebars around or, you know what I mean? Like, like, right. like all like go out and do kickouts, knock all the trash cans down in the neighborhood. You know what I mean? And like you, right. that, 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 um, it seems like it's gone, you know, like the whole street scene is, is not what it used to be by any means at all. You know, um, I was a racer, so I kind of know, and our products are for the racers. So I kind of know that whole track thing, but the street scene and riding and just going around, I think we do it on our mountain bikes. We want gears. I mean, I have, I have a 13 year old, 14 year old, loves riding his bike. And yeah, we go around and kick trash cans over. <laughs> yeah. We go tear the neighborhood, but we're on mountain bikes. You know? Yeah. Because, so, like, me, for like, I would say, I mean, I, I started riding BMX pretty young, but I mean, all the way through, all, into into high school you know it was like we that's what we did every day i mean as we got older it was like okay well maybe we'd go smoke smoke a joint and then go ride bikes but like you right. know it's like right. Right. but that that's what we did every day it was like you got off of school you went out you grabbed your bikes and then we would like ride over to this spot and maybe that was if you're looking at it in today's terms it was like oh we'd hit this tabletop that jumped over uh an alleyway and then oh. we drive or ride over to the other part of town where it was like oh well there's this sweet like staircase that we can do this on and then there's yeah. this ride over to the other part of town and it's like all you right. definitely don't see kids doing shit like that anymore yeah well we were all competing with the you know the phones and the internet and all that other stuff right now but they're still out there it wasn't what it used to be and you know bmx is still holding strong it's steady bmx race it's steady and it's a good market for us at least and, and i know it really well so we make some good money doing it but but I don't know about the street guy scene. I don't know. That's never been. Well, I mean, you, you don't go into a bike shop anymore and just see like a, a road, like most of the bike shops are like road bikes, mountain bikes, or cruisers kind of thing, you know? Right. And when I was a kid, it was like, you walked into the bike shop and it was like BMX. And then back in the corner, there was road bikes. You, right. you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It's not like that anymore for sure. For sure. That's crazy. I didn't, I, I never put any thought into that until you said that sentence just a few minutes ago. Well, look at all the big companies you don't involve self in BMX. You don't see Trek and Specialized making real BMX bikes. Yeah. And Giant either. I mean, they make them, but those are like what we call sidewalk bikes. Sidewalk right, bikes. right. They're not real BMX bikes. That takes a specialty company. For us, we're doing BMX race. That's a specialty. That's a niche. That's something that we specialize in. We have a background in it, but it's a niche sport, right? I tell you what, what I think is going to bring it back is, is you're starting to see these cities put in like pump tracks and stuff like that. Right. I think it's going to bring it back because it's something that people can get like it's attainable. Right. You know, mountain biking is like it, it's fun and all, but it is a expensive and B, you have to get there. 
right. you know what I mean? And as right. a kid, you can't get there right. unless you have a father or a neighbor or somebody that's going right. to take or a, like, it's really cool. I mean, they have like high school teams and middle school teams now, but, but right. I think these cities building, building these pump tracks and stuff like that, that's going to be the thing that brings it back. Yeah. And, you know, I think that the why BMX Street or skateboard is done real well is that because of lawsuits or whatever legal stuff, all these places you can ride now are in the city, owned by the city, and you can't right. sue the city. So yeah. that's why they exist. BMX racetracks are privately owned. They're not on, on, on public land. And, and you fall on that, and you can sue somebody. And that's that's been a big problem. Man, if we had a pump track in the neighborhood that I grew up, like in my city that we grew, I grew up in, Holy shit, man. The the rider that I would have been. Yeah. Compared to like, you know, like like I said, I mean, we would ride miles in between this one feature to this next feature. To have yeah. a whole like pump track set up like that. I'm like, I'm so envious of these kids nowadays. Right. right. I, I did the same thing, man. It's what it was. But right, now, right. now it's a chairlift or an e-bike. I won't ride it. That's <laughs> <laughs> So I want to ask you this, man. I'm I'm really curious about this with with the marketing of your company. I will tell you, I did not ever hear of you until Seth was talking about you. And uh, I'm sure anybody that's listening to this knows who I'm talking about when I say Seth from Seth Bike Hacks. Right. So what was it that what made you guys? Because there is, I'm in this YouTube space. I know what it's like talking to a lot of these companies. Some of them understand the YouTube space. Some of them don't. But you guys were ahead of the game, man. You guys really like latched on to him. And and I think what was it that that made that relationship happen? Uh, I think a younger staff that we have. I think the younger staff is knows a little bit more of what's going on than I do or some of the older people in the company. And so when they first came up to you, they were like, hey, we're going to go do this thing with this YouTube guy. You were like, ah, oh, fuck that dude. Yeah, I, I don't know who <laughs> Seth was, but one of our staff said, you got to like get involved with this guy. And we started looking at his followers. Yeah, at the time he had 400,000. I think he's at 1.5 now. Yeah, yeah, no, he's and, up there. You know, and, and, you know, he's not trying to be corporate at all. Let's give him some drivetrain, right? And and we gave him some drivetrain, he wrote some videos. and. Next thing you know, I go to the first Sea Otter a couple of years ago, and kids are running up as Seth here. I'm like, I'm like, I thought you guys wanted to see me. No, I'm joking. Right. But they wanted to see Seth, and I didn't really realize it until probably eight, ten months into the relationship, how how much of a fanfare he really has and how well his videos do. And I started watching his videos, like, oh man, the guy, you just want to believe everything he says. He's got right. this great personality and he his online presence, and it's just his the way he does things and and it's something, like I said, things are changing, just like distribution channels are changing. Yeah. Marketing strategies are changing in our industry as well. So yeah, we on top of that. So it, it's definitely a different thing, man. It blows me away. I mean, honestly, dude, I, my channel is not super huge. I, I'm obviously not a, a, some pillar of fitness. I'm not out there like throwing tail whips over big, big ass, you know, doubles or whatever. But even today, I was like up riding the local trails. Some kids walked up and they're like, holy shit. Hey, are you a biker? I'm like, what? what the hell man this is crazy you know and like i've had people you know want to take my picture at the bike shop i'm like dude i'm just a fat dude that likes to drink beer and ride bikes man you know like so it, it's definitely crazy to see how like that how things have changed that way yeah but it's interesting to me the companies that are embracing it because some of the companies that don't i'm like dude you guys just don't get it man and, and I'm not saying that because I'm biased of, of being in it. I'm just saying 
even from the outside, like if I was to never do this again in my life, for, from what I've seen, the way that it like it influences people, it blows my mind. Right. Like I, I would have never believed it until I like started being part of it. You know what I mean? Right. Right. No, um, I, I went to Seth's house about three weeks ago and rode with him, went to his local North Carolina mountains and rode with the guy and, 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 you know, he can write some pretty crazy stuff. And we spent about four hours out there, did 5,200 miles of descending. It was, uh, it was quite crazy. But the first time I was there, we, um, we're at a local restaurant. We're in a parking lot, parking his car, and a guy who was visiting the town, Asheville, where it's at, and um, the guy walked, hey, you're Seth. Seth had a box shirt on, and and, and it's just random guy, and he, was just, and he had to take a picture with Seth, right? Right. And got to town, but yeah, it's crazy. But congratulations to him. Awesome for him. He's doing a good job with that, and he's really good about it. It's funny. I asked him about how much effort he puts into it. He started giving me his schedule. That guy works as many hours, if not more, than I do. Oh yeah, it's no joke. Hard. So, at at his career and his job. So. Yeah, no, no, it's it's definitely a no joke. I mean, I when I first started doing YouTube, I did an interview with a guy that was a little bit bigger than me at the time, and um, I remember asking him, like, you know, how long does it take you to edit? And he said to me, "It's about three times as much time as it took you to ride." And I still tell people that to, to the day. It's like you do a three hour ride, you're at least 12 hours into editing, right. you know, and that's not like there, there's so much more to it, too, that comes. Man, when I first started this channel, I thought I was just going to buy a GoPro and drink some beer and get a whole bunch of free shit. And the like truck of money was just going to come to my driveway and just like a dump truck. Just, you know, like, no, it's not like that. You actually have to work for it. Just like everything else in life. Everything else in life. You got to work. Right? Weird. <laughs> but uh, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's been a fun ride though, but either way, it's definitely an interesting thing. And I, I was, was interested to, to hear like how that relationship happened. So it was just basically your employees were like, Hey, you need to talk to this dude. Yeah. Hey, have you ever seen the Seth guy? You got to talk to this guy. And we looked at his YouTube channel. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Cool. And he's, yeah, but he's got 400,000 people. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. And right. <laughs> you know, and uh, anyway, so, you know, I, 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 I said earlier, listen, really good people, some really good staff. And one of the guys brought Seth in and, and we've been building a relationship with Seth since the, since that day. And he really enjoys our stuff. He's been testing and prototyping some stuff that we're going to launch next year. And, and he's a big part of what we do and uh, he enjoys it. We enjoy him. So, so you guys are based out of Southern California. That's where your, your, your office is. And yep. We're in Anaheim, right by Disneyland. If that's oh, okay. A place marker for some people. Yeah. 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 Totally. For, especially for people that aren't, aren't from California. Right. Um, so you guys have all your manufacturing overseas or like that? Yeah. 90%, well, 95% of what we make is done in Taiwan. So does that just like ship to like you guys and then you guys send it out or do they like yeah. send it right to where you want it to go or? Well, we have a warehouse in Taiwan, warehouse in the United States, right? Uh -huh. So when we make an order, we'll send some stuff to Taiwan, send some stuff to the United States. Taiwan stuff goes off to Australia, to Europe, or some of these other countries that buy directly from us. So that warehouse ships from them. But basically we buy from the factory. We design, develop, and market something. And a factory makes it for us, and we ship it into these two warehouses. And then we talk to our customers and ship those to those customers, right? Interesting. And, and, and it's just it's 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 a brutal process, but it's how you get product out there. Yeah, know? I mean, yeah, you got you got you got to do it, right? 
Yeah. And, but it comes to California here and we have a big warehouse and stuff comes in. It's all QC. So we check everything that comes to us for a second time. It's checked there, checked on our side. If it passes inspection, it goes up on the shelves, orders are placed, turn around, goes out, comes in one door, goes out the other door. And hopefully we do a good job of buying and forecasting and all these other crazy things it takes to be in the industry. So, right. So when I was at Sea Otter, you guys had your derailers and stuff like that for the regular bikes. And then you also had some e-bike stuff. How much of a difference is it like engineering for e-bike compared to the, the regular bike side? Well, I think the e-bikes have to be more durable. Like, um, you know, on the cogs of, of a regular mountain bike, we have a couple of aluminum ones at the top to get rid of some weight. But our e-bike stuff, it's all steel cogs, all of them, right? And we use uh-huh. less cogs because you don't have to shift as much. You've got the power of the motor. You can accelerate faster with bigger jumps. Um, we have a thicker chain. These are the things that we do for the e-bikes. They actually do tear up the drivetrain. They're notorious for that, right? So we do engineer <laughs> for that. So, um, yeah, and, and that's why we're kind of into it. We really believe that the e-bike market is going to take off in America. You know, one of four bikes in, in Germany right now are sold are, are e-bikes. So it's 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 going to come to America quick. And Why do you think the Europeans are like like more willing to jump on that than the Americans? Yeah, and when I said one to four, it's sport bikes. <laughs> it's actually mountain bikes that they're trying. Right? Um, we all know they have their e city bikes, but you know, one of four sport bikes, you know, mountain bikes are e bikes now. That's a big number for Germany. Big number. So. Yeah, it's crazy. I just don't understand what it is that like. Do you think it's just like? like Europeans, like their trail, like use is like just easier to come by. Like, why is it that e-bikes are so much bigger in Europe than, than the U S that's, that's a, that's a good question. I think that Europeans are, you know, they're obviously cy- a cycling nation and the cycling yeah. continent. And I think they just take on things, but sooner, but if you take BMX race and you put it in Europe, it's not near as big as the United States. So yeah. it goes both ways, but the, but I think with the engineers in Germany and things like that, where it's really started, um, I think they just started putting bikes bikes together. When I was first told about it, I thought it was dumb. I kind of fought it and until I actually got a good one and actually rode it. And yeah. I ride my mountain bike, my heart rate's 170, 175. I ride my e-bike, it's 130, 135. I'm covering more distance, I'm not killing myself, having a lot more fun on it. So, Yeah, you know, some of the people that I've talked to where they're like, dude, look, I got a toddler – I got a wife, I got a job and I could, I, I just don't have the time to come out here and ride that trail. It's going to take you four hours to do. Right. And if I do it on my e-bike because the climbs are shorter, I'm doing that whole thing in like an hour and a half or something like that, you know? And right. they're like, right. dude, it, it, it just makes sense. And, and in that or in people that are, you know, disabled in any manner, or like I, I honestly, I, I, without a doubt, wouldn't wouldn't shy away from buying one at this point. The only yeah. thing that's keeping me from it is money. There's places yeah. where like where it's like OHV parks where normally we shuttle the fuck out of it with three trucks, you know. Right. And it's like if I had an e-bike or and all my buddies did too, we wouldn't need to shuttle. Right. Like we'd right. save all that time of yeah. driving the trucks back and forth yeah. and just pedal up the hill, you know. Oh. Right. Oh, it's a, uh, it's definitely, in the, the, I got a, I got a Fantic, it's an Italian e-bike and, and, uh, it's got 180 millimeters of travel front and rear coil over in the back and right at the top of a, a jump line and, get, and go down that jump line and do 25 jumps and ride back to the top. And 
there's a place we ride here called Santa's Village Sky Park. I think yeah. people knew that is. And they have a thing called the jump line. It's got 25 jumps in it. And my battery will go 13 times up the hill before it starts dying. <laughs> so I'll, I'll do 13 runs in an hour and 45 minutes and jump 375 times. There you um, go. Who can do that? And we're talking 30-foot doubles. We're not talking small stuff, right? And the e-bike handles it just fine. And there's no other machine you can do other than motorcycle. You can jump so many times in such a short period of time. And anyway, I, it's I interesting to me that the e-bikes are still using the the regular derailers, though. Like, do you, do you think that they're going to get into like the the like the pinion stuff? Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I do think, and I don't know how long it's going to come because you have the motor to over uh, overrun what it takes to to make a a, um, a transmission work. But a transmission is very uh, has a lot of drag in it compared to a trailer. So right. that's why on a regular bike we don't see that stuff that often because when a human has to push the bike up a hill, a trailer is the most efficient way to do it. Our chain management, but you put a a, uh, a transmission in there. The, the, co the drag coefficient of that product versus a, a drainer chain almost threefold. So mm -hmm. if it's 15% for a drainer, it's 45% of a transmission that takes away your energy, right? Don't mm -hmm. quote me on those numbers, guys. Some yeah, no, it's close enough for me, man. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, so anyway, so you're still gonna happen with a motor. You, you're gonna lose 40% of your motor climbing a hill if you, you know, you got a transmission. So I'm sure it'll come. Yeah. You know, just don't know when, you know? I, I, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot here just a little bit, and I'm curious to hear what your perspective is on this. I um, always say the worst engineered part on a bike right now is is the derailleur system, right? Because it, it just doesn't make any sense to me why I'm riding through rocks and sticks and creeks and whatever, and this part that is like the the main part of what makes me go is hanging down as close to the ground as it can as right. it is. So like, what, what do you got? Do you guys think that, you know, how is this going to get revolutionized or do you think it's just good enough and we're, we're, it doesn't matter? You know, I, I think we're a long ways away from figuring it out. It goes back to what I just said. I think it goes back to that the drainer in the chain is the most efficient way for a human body to push that rear end. You put anything in between your legs and that rear wheel, it's just more, more work. Um, uh -huh. I think until we figure that out, and it ain't so far the transmissions, it ain't right. there, and even the cost of those things. So what is it going to be? I don't know. I mean, if, if it's not electric, man, we're stuck with dreaders for a long, long time, in my opinion. We've looked yeah. up all things, yeah. So, what, do you, what do you think about the difference between, like, chain and some of these companies that are doing, like, with the, like, the, I don't know what the actual material is. It looks like rubber to me, but it's like, like a rubber kind of chain. Yeah, I mean a belt drive. Yeah, belt drive. Thank you. Yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was stretching yeah. for that one. I couldn't remember what it was called. Great idea, but you can't. It doesn't shift gears, right? So you have to put the gears inside the hub or uh -huh. inside the bottom bracket. And then so you're you back to that drag thing you were talking. Yeah, about. Yeah, you put those gears inside the hub. Go back to this, this efficiency problem you have with when the body has to turn those gears and change those gears and all those things inside that rear hub. It's not efficient. It's just yeah. not as not as efficient as a drainer in a chain. That's what it is. Just at the end of the day. At the end of the day, it's how much your body has to push through the mechanism. And yeah, and, and believe me, I want to push as less as I can. Right, and that's <laughs> the and the chain at this point. Right. So, what do you think um, it, that sets box aside from from the other two gorillas we were talking about earlier? Yeah, you know, I, I think for us is is that um, uh, 
man, you know, we, we, we're trying to be different. We, we're going to uh, announce some stuff here later this year that's a little bit different than the rest of the guys. It's, we're not a Me Too product. We're just trying to be different. Um, you know, with the push-push shift like we spoke about earlier, that was different enough until we got our hand slapped. But we just want to um, be different and make a change, right? And, and So at this point, you're not doing anything different on the shifter. It's just like well, one button up, one button down. Yeah, we do. We have two shift levers now, but our, our release lever goes both ways. Shimano does that, but SRAM doesn't. So we're always Yeah, you know what I tell you? I like that way better. Yeah, when I got my Bronson, I had had the the SRAM stuff on it, and that was one of the things that I I le liked the least. Like, do you, can you pull it as well as push it? Is that what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, that's the whole point. Yeah, the release yeah. goes both ways, right? Yeah, that I loved that because it was like sometimes it's like it was just easier to pull that like trigger finger instead of pushing my thumb to get like right. through there. And, and for us to do that with the patents that are out there, it was a lot of work to figure out how to do it both ways. So, like, do you just have to, like, change one cog in there and then it's different? Or is it, like... You read patents and you say, this is placed here. If we place it somewhere else, that might be good enough. But I leave that to the legal team, the engineering team. I don't deal with that stuff. So, uh, but, like, generally speaking, for the, the, the people that are listening, like, you can, you can kind of just move something around in there and maybe that's enough to make it change possibly. Exactly what we did with ours. We actually just reversed something and because the claims made by the other company said it has to be this way to do this certain subject. So we just changed the way it did it. It got the right. same result. And once we changed the way they did it, then it was good enough and okay for us to go to market with it. Right. So how do you do that? Like when you, when you come up with this plan, like you got to spend all this time, like you don't want to fully R and D that. So you want to get to a spot where you have this idea, then you just like run it through the lawyers that, I mean, my experience, yeah. my only experience with lawyers was my divorce. That shit takes forever. So like, how do you get, expensive. how do you get through that? You know, well, to like, we, we look at ideas, then we go back to the claims between the other guys. And actually we look at the claims and we can spend weeks and weeks doing that. Right. And then once we feel like we have an area to operate in, then we go to a, 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 a sec third party legal team, let them look through our ideas. And if we right. think it's good enough, then we ask for a freedom to operate letter. So basically, uh -huh. we ask these lawyers to confirm that what we're trying to do allows us to make something. Then we go prototype and make that thing. So when it comes out, our lawyers have already said that, hey, we think that your idea you know, is okay to produce. So we yeah, do it's pretty, all pretty that vetted by that point then. Yeah, so so we, we feel safer. We've got our hands slapped once. So... But we feel safer that we can do that if we put that effort in front and it's not cheap. And that's why we don't see other players in this industry. What was that day like, man, whenever you got the, the hand slapping? What's that? What was that day like whenever you got the hand slapping? Oh, just... man, it was just, you know, it's been so tough to do this. It was, it was like this another obstacle, another hurdle for us. It didn't affect me too much. I lost or we lost uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars on that. You know, which really set us back a little bit. But it was like, you know, I kind of knew it was coming. I kind of knew that we got to watch what we're doing, and we we missed our cue on that one. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's uh, gotta be rough, man. It, it's it's rough. It, it is. But like I said, I was just naive enough to get here. And but now that I'm here, I'm glad I'm doing it. I don't yeah, want to yeah. make another tire. I don't want to make another helmet. I've done all that. Um, I want to make some drive train, and I want to get some market share. You mm -hmm. know. And it's a four billion dollar business. I don't know if you knew that, but no, dude, there's there's definitely money out there, man. That's yeah. for sure. 
And like I said earlier, you can't make the bike go if you don't have that. So right. that's definitely a good spot to right. be in. You ride your bike without grips, but you can't ride it without a chain. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, you can ride it without grips for a little bit, but you yeah. can't ride it at all without a chain, right? Right. <laughs> right. So um, I, I listened to this other podcast. It's called How I Made This. Have you ever listened to that one? Not a podcast, but yeah, I, yeah. I so it's this dude. He always talks to these like CEOs of companies and like big companies, you know, like Dell or something like that, you know, and ask them how they how they did things. And he always asks them this question that I I think is actually a really good question. Is like, so if there's anything that you could have done differently to get you to where you're at right now, what would have that been? You know, I, I think um, tr tr probably slowing down the market. Yeah probably not worrying about the bottom right number on our balance sheet, you know, uh, which is always a concern of somebody in my position. I have to worry about that number. You know, that number has got to be black. If it's red, our investors and people around us and what we're trying to do doesn't work real well. So we'll put stuff to market. Maybe we're not ready trying to change that number. So if I had to do it all over again, I probably wouldn't not do direct train. I think I'm pretty content that we're trying this. It's a huge risk, but I'm kind of a risk taker anyway. But I think I would just take more time to get to market. I think we, I want to be, as we grow and become more mature, we want to make sure that when we get to market, we have something unique, something that's going to last, and something people can trust. And that's right. So instead of trying to push the product out, like refine it a little bit better before before you get to that point. Right. There's always the, the Michael Jordan rule, 90% is good enough. I don't know if you never heard that one, but Michael Jordan always said 90% is good enough. If you wait to 100%, you'll never get to market. Right. So, but I, I don't want to push stuff at 50% just because I need that bottom number to change, you know? Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So that, I think that's what we would do different. We just really, really do a lot of thinking up front, decide on what we're going to do and, and execute that idea much more um, secure or much more um, balanced than we have in the past. But we've learned. We've learned. So you guys are like right in the drive drivetrain space like is there is there other avenues that you guys have considered or you just want to like stick there or no what we did was about three months ago you know we make handlebars and stems and seat collars and seat posts and all that and i just you know i was killing our our r d staff to try to try to do the drivetrain the wheels all this stuff so what we what we do is we're focused on drivetrain i i dropped all that stuff we blew all that stuff out for the mountain bikes so bmx another store it's a different animal so you have a whole line of, of products that's BMX, that's box as well? Yeah, so we make every single part you need for a BMX race bike other than the frame, every part. And we make that from a three-year-old to a 60-year-old person, every size, every shape, whatever, about seven, 800 SKUs just for BMX race. So uh, did you guys start out with BMX and then get into mountain biking? Yeah, so when I sold the other company, I knew there'd be a, a deficit in the BMX world. So I just turned around, which basically made the right... When I sold my other company, it took a lot less money to have a no, uh, to not have a non-compete clause. Right. So when I sold it, I didn't want a non-compete clause. We took less money to do that. I basically went straight to the uh, Taiwan and started making better product than I had made before. Right. You're like, I got an idea. Sure, you can have this. I'm gonna fucking split and like make this better, right? So we we spent the first couple of years building 700 SKUs um, from 2012 to about 15. And then we started to work on the mountain bike stuff, right? So, so what made you decide to go from BMX into mountain bike? That's who I am. 
I was a BMX guy, I'm a mountain bike guy. So right. that's the two disciplines I know, right? I, right. You know, I know motocross, I know road bikes, I know those things, but I was never successful in those areas, right? So uh, I just, I think I know the park, the people, the, the, the ideas and what the park should be like. And, and for me, the park, the company is very park driven and I'm very so, familiar with those two disciplines. So how, how many it. people box nowadays? What's that? that how many people make up box? Like how many uh, people are 15 people in the company right, now. right on this is this is one of the things that i think that people don't realize and and i was one of them before i got into this youtube space and started meeting companies people don't realize how small in terms of like people wise all of these companies are you right. know and, and like you get there and you're like oh wow this is what's like feeding this whole world like this this little building here you know it's like right, like right. even going to like santa cruz you know like they're a huge fucking mountain bike company right it's not a big place right. there's not a shit ton of people like running around like in my mind it would be like oh dude there's like you know five floors of executives and buyers and whatever the fuck else is you know right, right. well the other two guys that we're going against have multiple engineers on one yeah block. yeah yeah they they have the floors yeah they definitely yeah, they, yeah, that's a little bit different for those guys. But uh, anyway, that's why we're focused on the drivetrain because we think that's our future. We think there's some market share to be had. And, and with the resources we have, we're focusing on it. And and, and e-bikes coming, and it's a passion of mine again. So uh, it's kind of funny. So I was able to to live BMX and be there from the beginning to the, the, the whole growth of BMX race. And I was there when the bikes had 20-inch top tubes. And when I quit racing, they had 23-inch top tubes. It was just an evolution, right? And the mountain biking, I went from a rigid bike to an eight-inch bike. And guess what? In my life, I'm going to get a third time. I'm going to get a chance to watch the e-bikes go from, from where they are now to some – who knows what they're going to be in the future. But but because I ride them every week, and I, I think I'm very extremely lucky to have that third chance to, to, to develop a product line or something we're all going to enjoy in the future and talk about 20 years from now, right? So, Yeah, no, it's definitely very interesting. Do you think, do you think we're going to have another tire size? Oh man, I don't know about that. You know, it's funny. I, I like my 27s, but uh, I just raced cross country last Tuesday night on 29, and I'm like, man, these work really good. So, so. I'll tell you what, man, I was slow to even consider the 27.5. Like, I was like, dude, freaking, because I had the BMX background. Like, so I like the, I, I even ride a, a bike that's probably a frame size too small for me because I'm used to that. Like, I, I like that flickability feeling, right. you know, and, right. and, um, I was I like people were like oh I've got this wheel and it makes it like roll over stuff easier and I'm like go fuck yourself dude I don't want it to be easier I want it to be hard that's actually why I'm out here you know right. Right. somewhere along the line I tried it and then whenever the 29ers came out I was like oh man like I I was willing once the 29ers came out like the, they just they handled for shit right. to tell you the truth it was like it was like taking just like a tank over a trail it was like you could do whatever you like it's just going to point wherever it's going to go so i felt like the 27.5 was like okay well i get it it the wheel rolls a little better and makes things a little fun and i'll do that still flickable i just recently bought a 29er that's a hardtail <laughs> holy shit, that bike is fun yeah. like and i every time i think about how much fun it is i just want to like slap myself i'm like no you can't say that you right. know what i mean like it is a damn fun bike and it like they like they've gotten that geometry straightened out where where you yep. know it's still it, it it 
it's not taking its own lines. It's doing the ones that you wanted to do. Right. And uh, so it just makes you wonder, like, so what's next, you know? Well, what the bike I'm right now is a 29 in the front, 27 and a half in the back. Oh, I've heard a bunch of people talking about this. That's actually what I've heard. Like the, uh, the, the community buzz is that's what people, everybody think is going to be the next thing. Well, for the e-bike, it seems to work for good. So I think I can jump better on that bike. It has a better traction in the back. And Why do you think that is? You know, I, I thought in the 20s, because the bike I had before was 27 back front and rear of my e-bike, but I can jump the, with a 29er. I cycle them in the air. I can kind of point it where I want it to go. When it grabs where I want it to go, it, it, it wants to go through that. It doesn't want to, like, bind up or kick me left or right. It just... I you think it's like just like the extra like like contact area on the on the ground. I so the wheels there. Yes, in the air. It's like when I'm pointing a certain ways, I'm coming to a landing. I'm pointing it down. I'm like when I get there, it's right there where I want it to be. But the twenty-seven sometimes, and we're talking just. Fine. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it, dude. But it, it's 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 minuscule, but it it is a thing. It is. It is know? a thing. If you're a bike guy and you ride as much as we do, you, you'll understand what that means. And I feel better with a twenty-nine up front. Yeah. That's interesting. That's really yeah. interesting. Do you um do you how do you feel like the about the big travel bikes? Do you feel like they're overkill or no? I mean, a downhill bike. I got a you know a, a M sixteen at the office. Big okay. Let let, let me re readdress this question. I think this is what I was trying to say. A while back, man, everybody just wanted to keep getting more suspension, more suspension. Right. You know, and, and right. it got to the point where it's like. You know, even me, like I was in a spot where it's like, dude, if it's on 150, 160, like I don't even want to fucking ride right. this bike. Right. And then I bought this hardtail because like basically the reason I bought the hardtail was because I wanted shit to be harder again. Right. You know, and the hardtail has 120 millimeter suspension on it and no rear suspension, obviously. Right. right. And I'm like mashing down some of these trails and some of them I ended up fucking PRing on where I'm like, how the hell did that happen? Right. You know, and it, and it, and all of a sudden it made me realize it was like, you know what, you actually don't need that much suspension for right. most of what you ride. Like I, I live here in Northern California, Tahoe is like right around the corner. There is plenty of stuff up there that you do need all that suspension for. Right. But there is a lot of shit that I ride that I don't. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I don't know. You know, I try not to boast on this one, but so when I was racing mountain bikes, I had a rig, thirty-five foot fifth wheel trainer i had a mechanic i had a masseuse swan all these things that, that helped me try to race right um but i had 17 bikes in that trailer it was all dedicated for me so why would you need 17 bikes when i pulled up to an event i'd look at the trailer I'd look at it was and there was a bike specifically especially slalom you know we had three bikes depending upon the slalom course my downhill bikes I had two that were identical as a backup bike i had a lightweight downhill bike I had two road bikes i had you know, a couple of BMX bikes. It was all these bikes that were specific to a course, specific. Right, to right. So I think what you're saying is, is that yeah, that bike's great, but if you get to a big downhill gnarly rock one, you better you can't ride that bike, right? Right, so right. I, I think it, based upon the trail and and, and the, the situation you're in, and and you can never have enough bikes to, to be better in one place or another. You got to yeah. find that one middle one. Where is that at? That's everybody's personal choice, right? So. Yeah, I think what you're saying there is like the right tool for the for the trade, you know. Exactly. Like, you know. Exactly. And when you're an athlete and you're a professional, it takes a lot of them. Yeah, when you have that ability to have multiple bikes, and I think what I'm getting at is, and you know, at the end of the day, most people, especially with the cost of like the way these things are, like, right. 
most people have like one, you know, and <laughs> maybe if they're lucky, they have two. And uh, like people make jokes, dude, my, my garage looks like a bike shop, but it's like, you know, I have a bike for like, for, for the different tools, you know, or for the different things. It's like, this is, that's the bike I ride around town when we're just going to go down to the bar and have a drink and come back. And then that's the one I ride with the lady when she wants to climb and do road rides. And that's the one I do, you know, and it's like, but, uh, but I think overall, I think what I was getting at is that I personally feel like, and and please argue with me if, if you feel differently. I personally feel like, like, a lot of marketing money and people have bought into like getting these like big bikes that they really don't need. Dude, I talked to somebody not too long ago. It was like in Georgia that wanted to get, you know, like the mega tower. And I'm like, dude, what are you riding there that you need a bike like that for? Right. What's funny was when I went to ride with Seth a few weeks ago, he talked about we're going to climb, 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 climb. Like, oh man, I'm not a good climber. So I have this, 140 bike at the office. Uh, I think it's 150, 140, which is small for me. And most of my bikes are much, much more than that. So I take this carbon fiber, somewhat of an enduro bike to Seth's, thinking I have to climb. When we get there, and Seth's wife's she's like, I'll just take you guys to the top. I'm like, I don't have to tr- climb this hill, right? <laughs> top of the hill. And now we go down this downhill. And the first thing I did, we drop in, and Seth takes off like a bat out of hell. And I'm looking at all these rocks the size of a car tire. I'm like, oh, I'm on the wrong bike, right? Right. You know, I'm like, this is going to be rough. Drop your seat and just don't fall was my goal. I want to break a wrist out of here. I mean, it was nothing but roots and rocks. And Anyway, at the end of the day, the bike handled great. It was fine. It got me through it. We wrote some really crazy stuff on what I would have, probably if I would have known where I was going, I wouldn't have brought that bike. I right. brought that bike because I thought I was going to climb a lot. And we went up downhill all day long, and the bike was fine. It did great. I never, I didn't get a flat. I, you know, I put a lot of air in the tires, but I didn't get a flat. Didn't have chain problems. Didn't crash. Seth finally crashed, and that was a good one. I, my GoPro had run out of, um, you know, space, and he crashed so bad in front of me. I was like, oh man. Oh, you didn't get it? I didn't get it. Dude, if it didn't happen on film, man, she didn't happen. Oh my God. <laughs> he, he, he got up, he was fine, but man, broke his chain, and then he had to like ride all the way back to the car. Without a chain, it was, uh, yeah, he wanted up pretty good. And my goal was just not fall because he rides some pretty crazy stuff. So that's, that's awesome, awesome man, that you're going out there and riding with him. And, 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 and I think that's the part about this biker bar that I like the most. I might even said this to you whenever we, we had met at Seattle. Like, it really just humanizes the company. Like, people don't necessarily like place like this dude that's been riding bikes forever you know, and that's going to go out and, and ride with Seth. And like, they don't place that when they, they look at like the name box on the side of a box. Right. You, you know what I mean? Like they don't, they don't put like, like Brad and Callie with his like big ass freaking pump track, like fucking dirt track out in the back of back lot of his building, you know, like right. pe- people don't think about that. And it's like, you know, they think about that. These are big companies and they're not, you know, most of them aren't. Most of them are, are are like people that are been part of the industry, love the industry, and and actually want to make a difference. You know, I have a passion for bikes. I think a yeah. lot of companies are started because they're bike guys. They want to be in the industry. They have an idea and they they make a product. And that's how I did it. You know, same old thing, man. I didn't know what else. When I quit racing, what was I going to do? I had to make something I needed. And, and the Fender funny story was 
you know, I had gone to a race and um, I had to pull a tear off. I didn't have a front fender. This is uh, 97. And, and I had to pull a tear off in the last turn before the finish. And I remember pulling that tear off. And I know it cost me that half a second that I lost by. I thought, what would stop me from, from pulling that tear off? I need something to keep the mud out of my face. And that's how we made the fender. It was right. all based upon uh, something I needed to get to go faster. And you're losing races by half a second. How do you figure that out? It was it was me reaching up for that tear off instead of pushing the pedal forward right. half a second. So I think that, that, that the people have those experiences that make these products, make us who we are. And we, we love it. We stand by it. And we, and we do it, right? So... Most good ideas are like that. You know, a lot of these like products that are like super beneficial. They're just like, they're just solving something that like a lot of us do, right. you know, like, let's just say, I can't think of a great example of it right now, but it'd be like, let's just say Camelback, for example, like, it'd be like, oh, well, if I put a backpack on my back, I can put a couple extra water bottles in there. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, so then I can ride longer because I only have two two bottle cages on my bike you know and so it's like next thing you know somebody's like well, why don't you have something in there you just drink it out with a straw right. you know it's like you know right. and, and next thing you know you hear you have a whole fucking industry of, of of something that never existed before you know monster company too that one is right right yeah it's just crazy you know and but but usually like a lot of times though and that's one of those things i always sit around and kind of think about it's like what is something that I do all the time to like overcome a problem that I have? You know what I mean? Right. So, so it's like, and, and you'll see products like that all the time. And it's like, I, Oh, well, I think that's what we do a box. Uh, I know that it's, you're trying to overcome breaking a chain. That's why we went with our nine speed on, uh, on, in, on e-bikes, these kind of things. Right. So, but that's what we think. That's what I think, you know, um, you know, we have some very successful products like our BMX carbon fiber forks. I wanted a 20 millimeter axle. I wanted the front of the thing to be stiff. So we put a 20 millimeter axle, 1.5 bearing at the bottom and the 1.8 at the top. And the front of the bike is so stiff, it's the standard today. So eight years ago or seven years ago when we invented that product, it wasn't the standard. It was because we we're trying to overcome a problem. Like yeah. flexi, you know? So anyway, that's, that's what we do, right? Are you guys in the YouTube space with on the BMX side too? Not so much. Um, I've had some some employee move arounds lately. Yeah. <laughs> so not so much. Uh, we have a full time social media girl, but she's more of the mountain bike side than not than the BMX uh -huh. side. So yeah. Where would you like to see box get in like the next ten years? Um. Well, we're going for OE spec in the next couple of years. We have a lot of OE deals that we're going to do. So. Model year 2021, which you'll see March, April of next year, um, we will have spec on that. And that's kind of been our goal as well is to get actually OEM spec on complete bikes that make it on the dealer floor. Yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. And it will enhance our aftermarket business and uh, allow us to have some economy of scale so we can actually get better pricing and grow and be a little bit more vertical in the way we produce product and, and get to the consumer. And But um, 10 years from now, five years from now, um, we just want 10% of that drivetrain business. Uh -huh. We want 10% of that 4 billion. You know, it's not so bad, right? Right. Not too much to ask for. I'll take 1%, dude. I'll be good yeah, with exactly. that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So. So um, where where is it that, that you guys are kind of, I don't know, you may or may not be able to like talk about that. Like what kind of like R&D kind of like avenues do you guys look into? Is it just like, how do you make this shifting like, 
smoother or is it like do we try to figure out a way to do this completely differently or like how how is it that you're looking at making your products better well right now it's a lot of focus on reliability and durability a lot of focus on that because with a lifetime warranty we really want to focus on reliability and durability and then function as well right but so with those two things once we get to that point yeah you're looking for an easier shift you're looking for a better clutch i think our clutch is better than the other guys my road with seth um i didn't have a chain device on that bike um and i didn't even realize it until i got all the way back to california thinking i didn't even throw a chain most of my bikes have chain devices on because i'm a downhill guy right but that bike didn't have one because it's more of a cross-country bike we never threw a chain so we believe that our clutch is extremely good and these are the kind of things that we're trying to we see a problem within the, the current market we try to change that now we're working on your push your push lever trying to make that a lot lighter than what we have now the other guys have pretty good light it's light enough you know where ours is a little bit tougher to push but we're, we're working on those kind of things so constantly basically rider rider experience you know durability reliability rider experience is what we're, we're working on is you are know, you guys in are you guys in the electronic market we have some stuff we're working on that. We, yeah. we can't deny that that's not coming. You know, I, I recently Tuesday night and I don't see a lot of the track I go to. Um, but three years ago, I didn't see a lot of one by stuff and now all the bikes are one by. So right. it's coming. Um, it's just not got the price points, not down there yet, but I'm sure that'll happen. And of course we're looking at that and we have, um, some engineers looking at opportunities for us there too. So that's the big thing with that stuff is just like trying to get the cost down. Yeah, it's just, and, and, and I think the average guy is not going to do it. Those are from the elitist, and you know, um, um, which is fine. But, but yeah, I, I personally, I think you got to get the cost down before you see any kind of volume of it. But I don't see it at the track at all. So uh, at least not yet. So yeah, it's coming. I'll tell you, I have a I have my cross bike has the uh, the di two on it, and in a road bike scenario, it's like it's awesome because it it I mean it doesn't get banged around a lot and stuff like that. So right. it's like just precision all the time the only thing that sucks is trying to remember to fucking charge the thing right but but true? like i would imagine that as that technology gets better like i mean we're, we're spending all this time and money engineering frames in order to like run cables through it once once the wireless or whatever can get to a point where you never have to worry about it that, right. that's kind of almost a no-brainer right yeah yeah the wires are a little bit problem for us too you know running a wire you know, and it goes up and down, up and down, and up and down. Forever gets the rear dreader. Every bit of that changes the way the dreader works. Right. And nowadays, the frames are so crazy that you, the wires go everywhere. So it, it's it's been typical for us because sometimes we'll have a bike and our dreader's not working. We can't figure out why. Oh crap! It's the it's the it's the cable routing more than it was the dreader, and we don't realize that until multiple tries. And we take it out of the frame, run it straight to the dreader. Dreader works fine. Right. Inside the frame, also the glitter doesn't work, right? So well, and then on top of it, it's like then you got the suspension moving, and it's like right. that's just freaking stretching it every time it, it does anything. Right. It's right. it's amazing. It, it's amazing what we have and how well it is at, at the point that it is right now. Like, yeah, honestly, like, like yeah. it just blows my mind. Yeah. yeah. What do you what are you looking forward to in far as far as bikes go, uh, other than like within your company? Like, what do you what do you what, what's uh, what gets you excited about the mountain bike industry? Oh man, well right now it's the e-bike stuff for me personally. But um, I, I think what I'm really excited about right now is our potential to do the OE spec next year. It's mm -hmm. been really good for us. We have a unique idea that we can't say right now that you'll see uh, September at Eurobike. 
Um, but it's been shown to a lot of product managers uh, across multiple brands inside the United States. And the concept's good. Um, it's, it's not a higher end price, more of a medium price point product, but the concept's really good. And we have a lot, a lot of interest in that. And that's exciting me to where you just might sell a few hundred thousand of something, you know, and if we get to that point, I'll be extremely excited about that, right? To see these right. bikes on the floor with our product. You go to a BMX race and literally you know, 90% of the bikes you see has something we've created on the bike, you know? So that's exciting. That kind of, kind of. Both you guys market. are doing well with the BMX market. Yeah, yeah, we done really well with that, and, that, and I, we don't have that in the mountain bike side. Mountain yeah, bike you're definitely. I mean, you're a boutique brand on the mountain bike side. I mean, yeah. I'm not trying to say that by any any means of like yeah, BMX course, or anything. Yeah, but BMX were kind of a strong company. So, but yeah, so I, I would love to be out go out of this race I do on Tuesday nights and see a half a dozen bikes with our stuff on. I there, think if I'm, you get anybody OEM, I mean that. I mean, obviously, I mean, you probably think the same thing, but I mean, you get, you get people buying it with it on there that that's just gonna, it's gonna solidify. And we'll, we'll as have, long as your product's good. Right. You don't want to go OEM with the shitty product. You might be fucked then. Right. <laughs> yeah. We hope we're there. Right. <laughs> no, no, but I think I, that, that'll, that'll definitely, definitely, um, it'd be interesting to me. You know, and I think that, I think that, you know, it takes companies like yours to shake shit up, you know, make, make, and not only like, you know, for you guys to go out there and do something different, but then that makes those other engineers work harder too, you know, and between the two, between the, let's just say at this point, the three of your companies, you know, that, you know, whenever they come out with something that's going to push you guys. So like the more competition that we have, I think the better it is for all of us. Right. 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 No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping so, and and then, you know what? And the other companies have been really, you know, somewhat gracious to us. I, they've had a lot of respect for us, and I'm I'm glad to play in a field with that. And I think at the end of the day, I think we all we all just want to sell bike parts and and, and you know, and uh, enjoy the industry that we're in and go ride our bikes on on a Sunday afternoon, right? And, yeah, so, yeah. Where's your favorite place that you've ever ridden mountain bikes at? Oh man, that's tough. I mean. I'm a big fan of the Kamikaze downhill. I, I was one of the top guys in that for many years. And where's that at? Uh, Mammoth. So oh, okay, so that's a little SoCal thing. Yeah. So I went. No, well, Mammoth NorCal is closer to you, right? I don't know. I consider Mammoth SoCal, but for for the rest of the the people all over the place, it's I guess it's kind of like the middle ish. Yeah, I think all an hour down Mammoth in California. That that was that was probably the funnest thing I've ever done. But actually, going to now we go up to Sky Park Sands Village and do that jump line with the twenty five jumps. Yeah, uh, I thoroughly enjoy that. I I love going to Big Bear and riding the chairlift. So you know, that's all local stuff. But I, I I've raced. I've been to fifty countries in my life. You know, and, and most of that was the BMX days. But I've raced in France and Norway and all these other kind of places. But I like being at home, riding a bike. At home. What was that like being a kid, man? Kind of doing that kind of that kind of traveling, man. I tell you what, dude, all I would have been doing is getting drunk and trying to like sleep with women. You, you probably have like seventy-five children, or you were actually a better person than me. <laughs> I was kind of known for that a little bit, so I don't want to like go there. My wife, I think she knows my background anyway. But uh, no, you know, I think I think yeah, we did everything you said, but. <laughs> the thing I remember the most is basically starving. You know, you're 17 years old, you're in England, and you don't want their food, man. You know, you're in France, you don't want that stuff. You want McDonald's, right. you want something. You want, give me a pizza without an egg on it. Give me something, right? right. So, yeah, I don't know. But um, no, I was very fortunate to, to, to go to all those places. And 
and um, yeah, uh, yeah. I think that the biggest thing was I was when I was young, I was starving. But if I were to know now what I know now, we all know that. No, back then, I said that right. Yeah, I, no, believe, I think we got it. Things would have been different, right? But no, it was it was a good experience, and a lot of great people took me around the world, and I got to write. How do you not let that shit get to your head, man? I mean, I, I like you're young, dude. You like you don't you don't. When you're young, man, you, you just think shit don't stink already. And then if you're going to be flying around the world riding bikes, you're, you probably thought like, dude, here I am. Yeah, but, you know, I go to a race and I win and kick everybody's at and my head would be big. I get to the next race and get my ass whooped and that puts you right back in, you know, right back where you belong, yeah. right? You get, so, you get a head check pretty quick, huh? Yeah, it, yeah, you're only as good as your last race you're in, right? So I think that, you know, it was a, it was rough. BMX was was a contact sport. I mean, if I didn't, if I didn't go home, I always had a goal. Go home with a thousand bucks. If I didn't have a thousand bucks in my pocket, we're talking about the eighties, a lot of money, right? If right. I have a thousand bucks in my pocket, I better be skinned up. And that was the rule for me. Skinned up meaning you had to fight your way for that thousand bucks. And and I would come home with some money or skinned up. And if I didn't come home with one of those two, I felt I didn't try hard enough. You're doing it wrong, huh? Was not, so I wasn't that was a off weekend for me. So was yeah. that a good like community there though? Or was it like, you know, everybody kind of like part of their ways at the end of the race or like you guys were traveling together or like in the same hotels or how, how did that work out? You had a certain friends that you, you did that with, but most of the guys, you didn't like each other. You guys were, you were complete competitors, right? So um, I didn't really get along with most of the guys other than a few guys that I hung out with. But it's funny is today, because I, the day I stepped out of high school, graduated high school, I started, I was on the road. I wasn't the typical guy that did the you know the the kegger parties on the weekend with their friends. I was gone every weekend. So as my friends got normal jobs and party on the weekends, I was be home all week and then be gone on the weekend. So I had a different lifestyle than, than the guys I went to high school with. But but now my friends are those guys I race against. Yeah. Yeah. Because I spent you know seven eight years doing BMX every weekend with the same guy. Right? Yeah, shit comes back around, right? Yeah. Just now we all get along. We're all friends, and it's. It's pretty good, pretty good community to be part of. Yeah. Did you um did you end up going to college later in life? No, it's funny. So um I'll give you a funny story. So, you know, the whole time I was riding for Raleigh, um, I was 17 and my mom and dad, I had to go to school, had to have a job. I would go to England for two weeks. I come home on Sunday night, 10 o'clock. My mom picked me up at the airport and she said, Oh, by the way, tomorrow morning you have to be at this warehouse at 6 a.m. to move boxes. I'm like, what do you mean? I've been in you know, English. She goes, you don't have any money. You need a job, right? I haven't made any money yet. So I literally was going to college, working job and racing until I was probably 18. And I went to a race like I did every Sunday morning as Mother's Day. I'll never forget. I won my very first big pro race. I won 1800 bucks cash. This is 1979 or maybe 80. I don't know. Right in or beginning of that time. And I came home with $1,800. And my mom and dad were across the street at the neighbor's house, and I walked in, and I laid 18 $100 bills on the table and said, this is what I do now, which was more money than my mom and dad made together in a month, right? So they, I, that, that was the time I never had to go back to work. I never had to go back to school. I just raced, you know, and I did that for 20 years. So they believed I, in you. I showed my mom and dad I could make money doing it. I was going to school, and I was working. So. Obviously, I mean, I, I have I, I have uh, two kids. One of them is he's he's uh, out of the house now, and my other one is just about to graduate from high school. 
And uh, like my daughter, for example, she's big into softball. And it's a lot of fucking commitment to, to do that. You know, you're driving around, you're right. paying for this, you're driving them there, you're sitting in that, you know, you're waiting for this or waiting for that. Like, it, it's a lot of commitment from your parents as well. So like they 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 were really supportive of you or? Oh, man, I don't back on when it goes back to my dad. No, not really. <laughs> not really? So it was all you, dude. You just was, you, I used to, When I was 12, I would ride two miles to a BMX track, pay 25 cents and race and then ride my bike back home and then i got involved with the people that were going to these races and i would hitch rides and whatever i took to get there and then around 14 or 15 it was just became difficult for me to do it but when i got a car you know most people kind of go the other way and don't do their sport but when i got my car and had my license i put my bike in the back of my truck and that's when it all took off at 17 yeah. years old i was able to get to the races on my own without having to wait on the people. So my career really took off when I got my license. You know? So you were just like winning races, you were just kicking ass. And because of that, like companies approached you or like, how did, how did you get to that yeah, point where you were like, uh, how do you go from the guy that's riding your bike to the, the race to be, excuse me, being in Norway? Well, well, so I was racing motocross for a while in high school. I would dig ditches all week long. This is when I had a license, dig ditches all week long and then go race my motorcycle on the weekends. And a friend of mine, Jeff Wotima, was racing BMX, and we were hanging out and doing that fun stuff we were talking about earlier. And I thought, yeah, I'm yeah. Jeff race on Sunday at a local track. So I went to a local track, which is five miles from my mom's house, and I went and saw him win $300 on a Sunday afternoon on his BMX bike. And right. here I was digging ditches, making $70 and buying a tire with it on my motocross bike, right? So I'm like, this is crazy. That Monday morning, I sold that motorcycle, went straight to the bike shop, and bought the top of the line BMX bike I could. Red who, line. Who was it by? Red line. Oh, so that was a good bike back in the day, yeah, man. I had motocross dollars from a motocross bike. I bought a BMX bike. You couldn't imagine. Why Those guys are still old. around too, aren't they? Yeah, they're still eh, kind of hanging. Barely, around. like barely, huh? Yeah, that's a, that's that's a big business story. But anyway, long story short, I uh, there was a race coming up. It said if you win this race, you can become a pro. That's how you. You had to win certain races to become a pro. I set out to win this race. I trained my ass off for three, four months, and I went to this race, and I won it as a 16-year-old novice, right? And I won that race. And when I won that race, I became a pro, and I went to my very first pro race. I started kicking butt. Next thing I know, Raleigh makes this call, and I'm just like, oh, Raleigh, Bison, what a lame company that is, right? Right. big-ass company who doesn't make anything cool. But they threw a check in front of me, and I thought, well, I got to take that check. Yeah, that's cool now. That's now cool. they're cool. <laughs> I took the check, and, you know, next thing I know, I'm on the cover of magazines, and I'm flying all around the world. And, you know, I was kind of glad I, took, I made that decision. You know, so it just happened. There's a lot of great bike riders. I always say this. There's a lot of great brake riders and bike riders at the same time. But I was lucky to have sponsors that took me around the world, which just made my career grow, right? Without that sponsorship and those resources, I would have never – been able who I was. So thank those guys for that. Right. What made you decide to like go into like components and building them? Like, like you, you did tires and helmets and stuff like, like some guys, there's lots of different venues that you can still work in the bike industry. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like there's guys like, like Hans Ray, for example, I had him on the show a couple weeks ago. Right. I mean, that dude's still riding bikes, dude. He's still like, you know, doing trips and, and riding bikes and making videos. Right. But like, why was it that you decided that, you know, hey, I want to try to like like use what's in between my ears instead of just keep it like like well, like 
Riding trails. Back to that story, I told you I was 12. I put that swing sticker on the mirror. And I said I want to make bike products because I was working in a bike shop. I didn't really enjoy the stuff. I thought the stuff wasn't exactly what I needed to ride and had these ideas. But fast forward 20 years later, I'm riding up a chairlift in 1998 with Craig Herbold. I know you know that name. And all I could think about was a stem that him and I were talking about. We needed a shoulder stem because the course that weekend, I didn't have the particular bike I needed. I needed a shoulder stem. And him and I were talking about that going up the chairlift, and my brain wouldn't let that go. I wouldn't let it go, the fact that I could go make a stem. I need a shoulder stem. I, you know, they don't exist. Why don't I just go make one? And it, I basically, my brain just turned off from being an athlete to being a product guy. You know, and a couple went, of years went. later, I'm making products. Right. What, uh, what, what's been the, the favorite product that you made in all the products that you've made? Like the yeah. one that you like, the first one that comes to mind is like, man, I was like, whether it was the first one or the certain revision to something, whether it was box, like, like the one that we're, you're just like, man, I, I was stoked when I made that. Like, I really feel like I, I it was the THE helmet line, the carbon fiber THE helmets. Yeah. Uh, they rivaled the Troy Lee designs. And, you know, I rode for Troy for a long, long time. And, we're buddies now. We actually race e-bikes against each other all the time. But I called Troy and told him, hey, I'm going to make a carbon fiber helmet. He goes bicycle specific, right? Full face. And he's like, oh, I'm so glad because he was the only one at the time making a three, $400 helmet. And I said, I'm going to make one. He goes, oh, that's awesome, Toby. I really, because I had THE name, was making the fenders, and I just wanted that helmet. And what I really wanted was that logo placement. You know, every time I saw an athlete's photo, you know, with their helmet on, you see the logo, right? I think, okay, right. I really want to promote my logo. I need this helmet. And actually where Brad makes his helmets, I knew the factory really well and the owner. And I went to them to make this helmet. And, um, you know, fast forward two years after I told Troy I'm doing that, I sold 15,000 carbon fiber helmets one year. And then Troy wouldn't talk to me anymore. And I couldn't figure out for years why Troy wouldn't take the call. <laughs> you know, I was like, well, shit, if you think about it, I, I was selling 15,000 helmets. I think that put a little dent in his business, right? So uh, I sold that company to a Korean company. Um, who made who was who was making the helmets and uh, um, and of course it doesn't exist anymore but but I did sell the company but I think that when I first saw that first helmet I was really proud of that because it passed test it had killer graphics it was carbon fiber fit like a glove it was it was something that that, that Troy had done already and and he was rival and he's still the king of it but I came close you know yeah, so yeah yeah it, it made you happy. Like it made you happy. You it made you happy. Yeah. That's awesome, dude. Yeah. But you know, the other night I raced that cross country race and I have some prototype stuff on my bike, drive train, and, and it was the best drive train we put together so far. And the bike shifts crisp, it shifts smooth, it shifts reliable. So I'm pretty excited the last few weeks racing my cross country bike where I think we've got the best drive train we've had up to date. It's taken five years, but we're finally getting there. So pretty happy with that stuff too. You think you think we need um, twelve gears in the back, dude? Twelve gears for what? In the back. You think we need twelve? In the back. Like so, like in, in. Well, I guess we don't have a front derailleur anymore. So uh, what? What uh, I'm okay. telling you, or what I'm getting at is this. This is my question, man. Yeah, I get you. I I get it now. Yeah. You, you know where I'm going. I'm gonna. I'm gonna I go ahead. Don't and need just, it, but I'm not gonna say that right now. I, I'm gonna lead it up a little bit though. But I'll tell you what, dude. There's probably like. If I could hit, get the same spread that I have right now with like five gears, I'd probably be fine. Right. Because honestly, what what do most of us do? We're like on the downhill, click, 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 click. Right. And then we're going on the uphill, click, 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 click. Right. And then every once in a while we're like, click, click, click. And then right. we're in the middle. 
when the fuck are we in those other ones? Never, you know. So like, well, that's what our nine our our e bike is. It's nine speed, you know. Yeah. And, and that's when I talked about earlier about faster acceleration because when you shift the bigger jumps with that motor, you accelerate faster, and and that's what makes the drivetrain more reliable. It makes it lighter. It makes it more durable when you start getting rid of all those. And I think you know all the top enduro guys don't run twelve speed. They break yeah. the chains. They all run eleven speed. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think we reached a point where less is more. I love the fact that we got rid of the front derailleur, dude. I'll tell you what. I, I do agree with you. Yeah. I hated that thing for so many reasons. Most of them had to do with me wrenching on that shit in my garage. Right. I'd get it right in one gear, and then I'd go ride a trail, and then the next gear would be all fucking like it wouldn't be fucked up. It would just be like enough to like just annoy the shit out of you while you're yeah. you're climbing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't miss that thing being gone at no. all. No. But I wonder, you know, like, do we really need a $400 cassette? Or, I mean, I, obviously, like, a bunch of the cassettes have come down. Are, do you guys do cassettes, too? Or Yep. Yeah, we do uh, all four. We do the shifter, the chain, cassette, and the dreader. The four pieces it takes to make your bike one buy. That's what we do. What is, what's different about your chain? Um, It's just as good as the rest of the guys. I don't know. It's uh, The nice speed one's obviously thicker, but... um. We just felt that we needed the chain to to allow our ramping and our the way we design our teeth to work together. So the chain works together with the cassette and with the drayer. So, so you don't I, recommend? I think we need to build all those together to get a better a better product. What's that? So you don't recommend somebody uses some uh, a different brand chain on your yeah. component because it's engineered. Our stuff is Shimano based somewhat, but. But we think that our chain and our cassette and our driver shifter work the best together. The other stuff works pretty good. I don't have a lot of problem with that because we have to put them on all the bikes to make sure it all works good. But SRAM and Shimano don't work together, right? So they're completely separate. We're, we're kind of a Shimano-based thing, but cassettes work both ways. But we still think the ramps of our cassette and our chain are probably the best together. So, so can you explain that just to me for just a second? Like... I would have never really thought that there was any difference between any chain other than like maybe material or something like that. So like, does it have to do with like, like the actual like measurements of how long each link is and then the way that the curve is in the cassette? Like, what is it that you're talking about that like binds them together? Well, the, 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 the length between the pin depends the same on all the chains, right? So they can somewhat ride on each other. But when you chamfer a chain, in other words, when you make an angle on a chain to shift up or down, that angle has to match somewhat the teeth. And if you know on your cassette, you'll look at, you'll see these kind of grooves on the side, right? Those right. are That's kind of what helps it like go up or go down. And right. And with that and the way the chain has its own chamfers, if you look at your chain, there's an angle on the way those are. Those little pitches are all different between companies. And they all feel that we have our way to make that chain go up and down and smooth and underpowered, all the things it takes to do that. And the average guy shifts under power. And yeah, we all do. Even though I don't shift under power because I know better, that doesn't mean that the guy- I know better, but I still do it, dude. I don't even give a shit. Exactly. You know? <laughs> People buy our stuff. You better make sure that, shifts, that stuff shifts under power. Otherwise, it's going to be clunky and bad. And, right, right. You know, so you got to test for all, all things like that. But- yeah, um, the way the tooth profile are, the way the ramps are on the cassette, the way the chamfer is on the chain, that's all a calculation that takes 
years of, of, of know-how. It's like a millimeter or something, like a half a millimeter. This little thing flares out and that's like. No, it's, 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 it's 0, 0.001 of, of a millimeter. It's not that's a millimeter. Right. So like with those cassettes then, is like is that stuff stamped like you were talking about? Or is it like CNC'd or like how do you get that? Like, well, most of the precision? cassettes are stamped. For stamp uh -huh. nowadays, because it, it takes a heavy duty tool to stamp a cassette. You can't, if you CNC stuff, one's gonna be extremely expensive, like the Eagle cassettes, extremely expensive because that's a full CNC part, right? Oh, okay. I didn't know they did that. So that's the difference. Yeah, that's why it's so expensive. It's from a block of steel. Right? Oh, wow. It spends about eight hours just on the machine. That's what makes that so expensive. But it's a great product, right? Most right. cassettes you see are stamped. Huh. So. Man, I'll tell you what, Toby, we're wrapping up on two hours right now. Dude. I'm fucking stoked, dude, that you got out here and chatted with me. I'll tell you what, every time that I talk to a company, if I could have the guy that, that started it, the guy that like made it happen, be the person that I'm talking to, I feel like that has its weight in gold <laughs> with, with like talking to people because like, it's what I said earlier, man, it, it really like humanizes the company whenever i talk to you at sea otter and you were like yeah dude i was like hey you have somebody from your marketing team or whatever wants to get on the show and you're like dude i want to be on the show man that's awesome i really truly appreciate that Eat my ego. yeah man I'm, I'm telling you though like i think it makes a big difference man it really I, I can tell you all the people that are watching all the people that are going to watch later the people that are going to listen to on the podcast it means something to them dude because like you're you're going out there and, and you're 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 preaching you're preaching your passion you know what i mean right. and you're standing behind what you got and you're also like hey you're a regular dude you're talking about going out riding bikes and and having fun and you've done that for a long time and now you're trying to just make the industry better i i really truly appreciate that you took the time to sit down and talk to me is there anything you want to chat about with box about box before we wrap it up no, I, I appreciate you having us on and, and, and people the chance to get us out there and, and let people look at what we're trying to do and just appreciate the time you spent and asking us to do this. And I just want everybody to wish us luck. we got some, you know, some uh, big hurdles in front of us, but we're going to get there step by step. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be doing what I'm doing. That's for sure. And I appreciate that. Right on, man. I'm stoked that you took the time with me. Somebody asked, how do you get the podcast? You go to the Apple podcast app, search Biker Bar. You go to the Google Play Store, search Biker Bar. I think I got it on SoundCloud. What's that other one? There's what Spotify. I got it on Spotify. There's probably some other places you can look for it too. I don't even know where, where those are, but you can, you can get it on all those spots. If you go to the channel, I will put the uh, links up to the podcast as well after the fact, or you can just listen to it YouTube. Some people do the YouTube red thing. You can listen to that with the, uh, with the, with the window closed. You can still hear it whenever you're driving. But the big thing is like, honestly, Apple, Google, everybody has those phones. Hook them up to your car, listen to it while you're uh, commuting, listen to it while you're at the gym, listen to it while you're, I don't know. Right what right riding your bike exactly dude. see now nah, i knew i had you on here for a reason <laughs> everybody i really appreciate it. i saw a bunch of uh, super chats come up while we were chatting i appreciate all you guys dude thank you for the support of the channel it means a lot it definitely definitely means a lot if you want to support the channel a little bit more swing by patreon i got a uh two different tiers there one's gonna get you some stickers that's five bucks a month a little and uh 
that that'll that'll make me very happy it fills up my beer fridge over there it's empty as fuck right now and then uh the other one's a buck a month still gets gets you you know access into the uh, coupons that i have for different vendors that i talk to maybe i can hook something up with box and put the guy on the spot right now right? Yeah, <laughs> so anyways hey man everybody i appreciate all of you guys coming and hanging out with us and toby seriously that was a super fun, super fun hanging out, man. I had a great time, Robert. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. You take care. Everybody remember one thing and one thing only. It only takes a bike to be a biker. Get the fuck out and be one, bitches.